We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, on this wonderful Sunday morning. Uh, I've got a question, I've got a couple questions for you. The first is, um, how many of you are, are claustrophobic? Okay, some of you are honest. How many of you are, are, are claustro nervous? Okay, so you're saying like, okay, it doesn't, I'm not claustrophobic, don't be melodramatic, pastor. Um, but I just kind of don't like tight spaces, right? Okay. All right. So I, some of you are. Um, some of you are maybe not so much. Um, how many of you are afraid of drowning? Okay. Okay. So we got a few more hands, I think, on that one. So we've got um, um, how many of you are kind of nervous of drowning? Okay. Okay. So we, we're getting we're getting a few hands we're getting a few hands here. I, um, I would venture to say um, that maybe, maybe one of the more common or a couple of the more common things that, that are fears of people uh, uh, are confined spaces and drowning. So my wife uh, always tells me, and I know this, um, when I get pretty stressed and anxious and things, I'll have, I'll have nightmares. And uh, the one that she always knows when I'm having it, it's a, it's a dream about drowning or I'm gasping for air. Um, and she knows it because she can look over at me and see me like shaking, right? Um, so I, I, think, I think those are probably pretty common, right? Uh, uh, fear of or at least nervousness of tight spaces, a fear of or at least nervous uh, about drowning, right? And, and those kind of things. Those are, I think those are natural human fears. Um, so then here's my, my third question for you. Um, how many of you have ever seen this movie, 13 Lives? Some of you have. Um, if you are deathly afraid of tight spaces and drowning, you may want to skip this one. You may want to skip this one. Um, um, no, um, this is, a, this is a, a pretty incredible movie. Some of you maybe saw it. If you didn't, I'm going to describe it just a little bit for you. Um, first off, uh, it's on Amazon Prime, by the way, since all of us have like 18 different streaming devices, I'm sure. You can find it. Um, this came out in the last year, 13 Lives. It's based on a true story of the, the boys' soccer team that got trapped in the cave in Tam Luang, uh, which was northern Thailand. So maybe some of you remember the, um, the story of that and the, the saga of that, of uh, this soccer team that got trapped in, in, a, in a cave as the monsoon rain started to come down and their escape route was completely cut off, right? Um, and they had gone really, really deep. So remember when I talked about tight spaces and drowning? Um, that's how far in they had gone, right? And that was an absolute reality for them. And so uh, maybe you remember back to this and, and the world was kind of, kind of coalescing around it. How are those boys going to be saved? Are they going to be saved? Is this going to be the end of it? Um, this movie, 13 Lives, is, is based on that true story of the rescue of those 13 boys from that cave. But if you've seen it, then you know what I'm talking about with claustrophobia and fear of drowning. Much of the movie is take, takes place um, in this cavern, in these caves, in the midst of water, trying to get to these boys. Here's a map of exactly how far in they had gone. So approximately two and a half miles deep um, into where they, they were at. And you can see the up and down of this cave and how it had filled with water. And so um, to get 
to the boys, to find the boys, to, to, to retrieve them, um, it was about two and a half miles of, at times, shoulder-width passages. And did I mention the shoulder-width passages were also submerged? Okay? Okay. So, um, my wife, who, who, who doesn't like tight spaces, um, this was a tense movie, to say the least, for her to watch, right? Um, and, and so they went in, and, and rescuers went in, and they were trying to find them. They fi- ended up finding these boys all the way at the end, but they, they had a problem. Um, how were they going to get them out? Uh, and what they had done was they called in some experts in scuba diving, uh, but also spelunking, right? So navigating through caves, because this was a little bit unique that you had to have a skill set that could do, do both of those things, right? And so they got some of these divers in, these, these explorers, they were from uh, Great Britain, a few others, um, that were willing to do it and had the capacity to do it. And they got all the way in, they ended up finding the boys, but the challenge was, how are we going to get them out? Now, uh, they had all the equipment that they could ever have at their disposal to do this, right? So they were in full scuba gear as they went in. So they were, they were able to breathe um, they had high-powered flashlights. Uh, they had, they had uh, medical personnel that were there, that were waiting, that, that were able to do whatever they wanted to do. But um, one of the more interesting, if not maybe overlooked pieces of equipment that I would probably argue facilitated this entire movie and this entire rescue is seen right there. See that red rope? When those rescuers first went in, um, at each point, they simply clipped a rope all the way until they reached the boys. You can guess why, right? In the darkness, in the water, in the confusion, all they had to do was follow that rope out to safety. And so it's actually not a big plot point of this movie. It's not a made as a big deal. But the very first thing they do when they go in is clip a rope all the way in to where the boys are at. And the, end, the other end of that was safety. We have a term for what that rope is, and it's not a very amazing term. I think they should come up with something a little more amazing, but we just call it a guideline, don't we? Sometimes a, a lifeline. That lifeline is what would lead them through the darkness, through the claustrophobia, through the confusion, ultimately to safety. Now, uh, if you watched that movie, or if you're going to go watch that movie, um, kind of at the climax towards the end, it's at about the two-hour mark in the movie 13 Lives, um, there's a depiction of, of one of the last kids that they're bringing out. So uh, um, to bring these, these, these 13 boys out, um, they were actually going to have to anesthetize them, put them under, knock them out, put masks on their face, and then the scuba divers, one scuba diver with one child, would slowly bring them out. And they, they did it. And they did it successfully, right? And each and every child was able to be brought out. Um, and it was towards the end, though, where there was a couple kids left, and specifically, uh, um, Chris Jewell, this is uh, his actual picture, uh, um, was taking one of these kids out. And he said, as he was going, 
Uh, um, he was hauling the child next to him in the child's scuba gear, and he had his scuba gear on, and in the darkness, um, he was guiding himself along on that guideline or that lifeline, and all of a sudden, he lost it. He couldn't find it. Chris said um, this was the scariest moment of the entire rescue. He said up to that point, things had actually gone pretty well, or at least as to what they could expect. And they had already saved lots and lots of kids. Um, but he said, when I, when I lost that guideline, um, it was sheer terror. It lasted for four minutes. So for four minutes, he was alone in the dark with the life of a child at his side, and he had nowhere, no idea where to go. So for four agonizing, terrorizing minutes, he had lost hope, right? Until finally he was able to grab that line, right? This is what Chris said about that moment. He said, if you never find that line again, the outcome will never be good. So he knew if he couldn't find that line, not only would that child die, but he would as well. He wouldn't make it out, right? I think maybe that movie and even that experience from Chris Jewell um, can be a good illustration for what we're going to talk about here today when we, we, we explore um, our doubts. Right? Uh, I, I don't think it's very far off to say that, that um, there are moments in our lives when we doubt, when we struggle, um, when we feel as though the, the, the world is pressing in around us, when we are massed in confusion and we have no idea which direction is up or which way to go. I think um, in our doubts, in our fears, uh, we can maybe feel a little bit like Chris did in the four minutes of terror that he had. Today, that's what we want to explore. We want to ask ourselves, along with the writer of this psalm, um, wh- where does that lead, right? Ultimately, how does God answer that, that, that fear, that terror, that confusion at times, uh, um, and how does he come to us and ultimately guide us out of it? So that's going to be where we're headed today. Uh, we're just going to talk through that, that concept of doubt um, in the life of Christians and in the lives of those around you. So uh, for those that like to kind of follow along, we've got a rough outline. Um, we're going to talk about doubt what it looks like as it's seen, um, how doubt is expressed, um, but then ultimately how that doubt is changed uh, in, in Christ is where we're, where we're headed today. So, um, but before we jump into our text, um, a little bit of, of background on to exactly what's happening in, in Psalm 73. Uh, it was written by Asaph. Uh, we don't know a ton about him. We know that he had written uh, other Psalms in the Old Testament book of Psalms. Uh, we do know that Asaph was, in a sense, a, a church worker, right? So this was his job. He, he was writing songs, he was writing psalms, he was writing scripture, right, inspired by God above, but, but he, he was a worker within the church in that sense. You say, okay, well, what, what does that matter? Well, I think here's why it matters, is because of the subject that we're talking about today, Right? Uh, um, Asaph worked in the church. He worked in the temple. He wrote scripture. And yet, as we're going to see, the scripture he wrote today was just brutally honest. 
Right? You almost wonder if he, if he wrote this psalm and, and then kind of put it in front of the chief priests or whoever was kind of in charge of reading it and, and they looked at it and they read it and you almost wonder if they just like passed it right back to him. <laughs> like, uh, this one's, a little, this one's a little too much, Asaph. Can you just, right, smooth out some of the corners of this? Can you, can you, uh, can you just, you know, we kind of like the end part of this, but can you, can you kind of just leave out the early parts of this psalm? And um, Here's the value of what Asaph wrote for us. Um, it is an honest depiction of the human condition and someone that was legitimately struggling with doubt. Why is that beneficial? Because every single one of us struggle with doubt at different times and in different places. And what do we do with it? That's maybe one of the early questions, right? And I think this is actually a strength of Psalm 73 and I would say of Scripture as a whole. Nowhere within the pages of the Bible does God say, I'm going to scrub out the stuff that, that is not so savory. I'm going to... I'm going to um, kind of sanitize all the stuff that's difficult. Um, talk about, about uh, Judas betraying me. No, I don't want to do that. He was one of the 12. Talk about Peter, who was the, the, the spokesperson for the disciples, disowning me in my very hour of need. No, no, we don't want to talk about that because that would lend a bad light. The opposite is true. Pages of Scripture, you get the full spectrum of human, the human condition, right? The highs, the lows, um, the triumphant, the tragic, all of it. God does the same through the writer of Psalm 73 as well when he conveys doubt, when he conveys his struggle. Now, as I mentioned, what do we do with that? I think there's a kind of a a couple common directions that we go with that. Uh, um, If you're if you're within the church or if you're in church, maybe there's a temptation that we say, well, if we ever have doubts about our God above, if we ever have questions about our God above, um, then somehow, some way that there's something um, intimately wrong with me. And if we assume that, then we better not tell anyone, right? As believers, I think there are moments when we have legitimate doubts and struggles and we don't, we don't want to tell the people around us. I'm not going to ask pastor that. That'd be terrible, right? Where, where we don't want to admit those things because um, on some level, we, we are, we are, we are um, making the assumption that God loves us because of what we do, who we are, or how we think. But you want to know what? That assumption is actually wrong. You want to know why God loves you? Because of Jesus Christ, his only son, who gave his life on the cross for you. And God sees you as his child and wants to hear your thoughts, your, your praise and thanksgiving, but also your doubts and your fears. So I think sometimes maybe we're tempted to do that as believers. We say, no, I'm not even going to think. I just have to trust more. I, just, I can't even talk. I can't even raise those questions in my own mind, much less talk about them with someone else. Because if I do, then I'm afraid that this, this, this demanding God isn't going to love me quite as much. Let me just set that aside. Your God loves you infinitely because of his son, Jesus Christ, right? Okay? I think that's maybe one direction. Um, you might think of it this way, that we take those emotions of doubts 
and we say, we're just not even going to address them. We're just going to pack them away. I shouldn't have them. I'm not going to have them. I'm going to put them in a closet, just leave them there, right? But I think there's a temptation to go the other way too, and maybe especially within the world around us, the unbelieving world around us, where we say, okay, well, if I have these doubts, if I have these emotions, then surely that is my true self, and it is exactly who I am and what I should listen to. And so I think sometimes we overestimate how we are feeling, our fear, our, 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 our paranoia, our, our, um, um, all the things that come into our mind and we overestimate those and we say, okay, well, if I'm having any doubts, if I'm having any struggles, then that must mean um, that that's exactly who I am and I'm just going to dive wholeheartedly into them. But you know there's trouble there too, isn't there? Because have your emotions ever let you down? Yeah, they do, <laughs> right? Have you ever said something that you regretted afterwards? Yeah, you have. Have you ever said things to people that you love more than anything else in the world? Sure, we have. And so both of those things are true. Um, let it, let's not pretend that we don't have emotions and doubts at times. But let's not dive so deeply into them to think that that is the direction and that is the sum and substance of who we are. I think the real wonderful thing about Psalm 73 is, is that the writer of Psalm 73, Asaph, says, um, we're not going to pretend that doubts don't exist, but we're not going to just jump headlong into them and pretend that they're the absolute truth either. There's a third way. He said, we're going to talk about them in the light of our God above, in the light of the people around us, in the light of the things that we know, and we're going to be able to pull them apart. We're going to be able to understand exactly where these doubts come from, what they look like, and ultimately where God wants to lead us in the midst of them. Okay? So that's where we're going to head with Asaph as our guide. Okay? So let's jump into our text uh, you're welcome to follow along with me if you'd like in your bulletin. Uh, you, there's a little spot for notes if you'd like to make notes or doodle. Um, or if my sermon just gets too boring, you can draw pictures and things like that. So, no, that would never happen, right? Yeah. Um, but let's jump in. We're going to read uh, verses 1 through 3. Uh, and we're just going to talk about what does Asaph see when he looks at his doubt, okay? It says this. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So he's, he is appealing to God's justice. He's saying, God, you're a loving God, you're a just God, right? So uh, um, um, I'm appealing to that. Then it turns, says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped, I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So now he's admitting his doubts, right? He says, My foot... Had, my feet had almost slipped. So you almost get this idea that um, he has not fallen, but he's not in a great place. Spiritually, emotionally, um, any of those things. He's struggling, right? You can feel his struggle. He's being um, raw and honest about it. And, and where does it come from? He says, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So um, this is maybe our first point is that doubts don't just come from nowhere. They, they come from somewhere, right? They come from exposure. They come from seeing. They come from interacting. They come from uh, external sources. So these things uh, um, um, don't just magically appear. They come from somewhere. In his case, he said, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And I didn't, 
um, actually um, put in your bulletins everything after verse 3, but he kind of goes on. He just says, um, they, they, they amass more and more, more wealth. They oppress more and more people. Like um, these evil people that are, that are clearly um, 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 wrong are simply getting richer and richer and richer. And so he's saying to us, he's saying, I, I, I see what's happening in the world and it, it doesn't make sense to me. Because oppressive, wicked people are not supposed to have such luxurious, easy lives. In some sense, Asaph is saying, that's not how I would run it, God, right? And so he says, I, I saw this. I see the prosperity of the wicked. And he said, there's, there's a disconnect there for me. What I see is different than what I want and what I expect to be there, okay? So, Asaph's doubts come from somewhere. In his case, it's that he saw wicked, evil people prospering and seemingly triumphing this side of heaven, okay? That's what he saw. But someone once said, you have to doubt your doubts. If we dig a little bit deeper into Asaph's statement, said, okay, this comes from somewhere. He saw, he is seeing this around him, right? He's seeing injustice. Um, We dig a little bit deeper and in verse 3, you maybe find the motivation because what does it say? Right, envy the arrogant. Aha, Asaph. Okay, so now we're getting a little, it's not just, and so in Asaph's case, it's, it's not just that wicked people are prospering. It's that wicked people are prospering um, in contrast to him. <laughs> which is fascinating, isn't it? So um, on some level, um, Asaph is pulling apart these doubts and he's saying he's, he's doubting his doubts now because he's saying, are my motivations actually pure? Well, they're actually not. He admits to it. He says, no, actually, I'm envious. You, you take the hypothetical. Would Asaph have had doubts about God's goodness if he was just as rich as the wicked that he saw around him? It's a great question. He struggled because he saw wealth and evil and he didn't have it. <laughs> he envied it, right? At least now Asaph is being a little bit honest about his doubts and where they're coming from, right? Uh, um, um, if, if he saw wicked people wealthy but he had the same amount of wealth, it's amazing for us um, how much we are willing to overlook as long as we're getting our piece of the pie, isn't it? It's amazing how much we will put up with as long as we basically are getting the things that we want, that we need, and our life is going according to our plan. But what happens as soon as those things get cut down? When, when we are able to look around us and say, what about him? What about her? What about their family? Right? What about that job? What about that career? What about that respect? Right? Very quickly, I think we fall into the same thing as Asaph. So what, were, what was driving his doubts? There's an element of what he saw. But I'd say in large part, it was his envy, right? It was him in comparison to what he saw. So that's the very first thing, right? Um, our doubts never just pop out of nowhere. It's part of what we see, but it's also a large part of our, our emotion, Okay. Um, so then how does Asaph 
express this, right? And I think this, again, is the beauty of this psalm, is that he, he really doesn't hold back. He just pours out his heart. Uh, so 12, 13, and 14, Asaph says this, this is what the wicked are like, as if, as if God doesn't understand this. He says, I'm going to lay it out for you, God, um, because you might be napping or sleeping. Let me just tell you what's happening, right? Let me just... Let me just show you what's happening down here on earth because it seems as though you're not paying attention. He says, this is what the wicked are like. They're always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. Can you feel Asaph's pain? I think we can and I think you should. And it's legitimate, right? It's legitimate. These are his emotions. But when we pull them apart a little bit, is what he is expressing 100% true? Not really. Uh, When I do marriage counseling with couples, I tell them not to use some of these words. You always do this, right? Um, these, These... grand exaggerations. Well, guess what Asaph's doing? He says, the wicked are always free of care. Is that true that they're not always? Everyone suffers, right? Um, Sometimes, yes, but he says they're always free of care. They just amass wealth. You get this picture like that, Asaph, that everyone who doesn't believe in God is just the most wealthiest person in the entire world, and it it simply is, it's a a caricature of what is reality, right? Um, And then he turns it inward, and he says, He says, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands of innocence. So he's now placing himself over here. Do you think that Asaph was always pure and innocent? The answer is no. He wasn't always, right? Right? He wasn't always. And yet, in light of this, he says, "Um, look at me compared to them, right? Look how innocent and pure I am compared to them. To them, And so he exaggerates that too, right? All day long, right? As if this never ends. And then the last verse here is probably the most honest of all of them. I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. Can you empathize with Asaph a little? Do your mornings bring new punishments? Do you barely sleep? And the morning comes remarkably quick. And it's another day of work, monotony, pain, suffering, struggle, day after day. I don't think we have to dig very deep to feel this. Every morning brings new punishments, right? Um, We've been there. Maybe you're there this morning. See, I, that's literally where I am at this morning. Um, if that's the case, we're right along with Asaph, right? So we've seen his doubts. Now he's expressed those doubts. The real question then for us is not whether or not we have doubts. Everyone does. Everyone struggles, believer and unbeliever alike. Um, um, everybody struggles with the things of this world and how to navigate them. The real question is, what is guiding us through those struggles, through that pain, and through those new punishments day after day, okay? That's where this psalm turns just a little bit. You remember Chris Jewell, 
Uh, he said, if you never find that line again, the outcome will never be good. Uh, those of you that watched the movie maybe noticed that I left out just a little bit of a part. Uh, so for four terrorizing minutes, Chris Jewell lost that lifeline, that guideline that was going to lead him towards safety. Um, and he blindly in the dark was grasping, trying to find that line. And eventually, uh, his hand did grab a line that he found underwater. And he grabbed a hold of it, but guess what? It wasn't the lifeline. It was actually an old electrical line that had been strung through that cave. And so he grabbed a hold of it, thinking that this was the line that was going to take him to safety, and he starts following it with the child at his side, and all that it did was bring him back to a previous chamber. Now, here's the point of that. Um, in our doubts, in our struggles, right, um, when we are grasping for a lifeline or a guideline, um, in our doubts and in our struggles, um, we, we never just fall to nothing. Right? In your doubts and in your struggles, you never just fall to nothing. The truth is we always grab a hold of something, <laughs> The question is, are we going to be honest about that which we are holding onto and where does it lead? Okay? So what I mean by that is we always grab a hold of something. So in our doubts, if it's not God and his promises and Christ that we are holding onto, at least let us be intellectually honest enough to say that we have chosen to grab onto something else. It guides to a different place with different purposes, but let's at least be honest enough to say this new rope is what is going to pull me and I'm going to follow through life. And that can be a myriad of things. Maybe that's our own intellect, our own reason. Maybe that's uh, amassing of wealth to try to keep up with, with the wicked that we see around us. Maybe it's respect within the world around us. Maybe um, um, we put everything into our children and their success. And if they're successful, that means I'm successful. And that means that I'm, I'm a good person. And, but no matter what it is, in our doubts, we never just fall to nothing. You always grab a hold of something, something else. And the question is, where does it lead, right? That's a good question for us. That's the question that you can almost picture Asaph grasping for, right? Our entire text turns on verse 17, where we find Asaph, find his guideline and his lifeline. Verse 17 says this, Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. So now what is Asaph talking about here? This is psalm language. This is poetic language, right? Um, entering the sanctuary of God. Uh, Asaph was a church worker in the sanctuary in the earthly temple. But ultimately, it was much bigger than this. It was much bigger than the physical holy of holies. Asaph says, I'm entering into the sanctuary of God, not a physical place. but Someone. That's where Asaph find, found an answer to his doubts and grabbed a hold of that lifeline. Now, if Asaph's description of that is a little too um, poetic and maybe esoteric for you, um, we can make it really, really practical. There's one guy in the entire Bible that got the nickname Doubter. Do you remember his first name? Thomas. Thomas. I know, poor Thomas. So, poor Thomas. 
Thomas, a disciple of Jesus, right? The only thing we know about him is that we could now call him Doubting Thomas, right? Poor guy. Thomas wasn't in the upper room. He had not physically seen Jesus' resurrection. He said, I won't believe it unless I can see the scars in his hands, the wound in his side, unless I can touch him, I can feel him, and I can be with him. You think that's a little presumptuous demand by Thomas? A little bit, a little bit, right? All of his disciples, all the disciples had said, we'd seen Jesus rise. In fact, Jesus had said, I'm going to rise again. Thomas had not seen him, and Thomas says, yeah, until I see him, right? I mean, to be very honest, that is a pretty big demand, isn't it? Here's what's even more amazing. Jesus says, okay, right? He shows up to him, John 20, verse 27, 28. Then Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. So the answer to Thomas's doubts were Christ. The answer to Asaph's doubts were Christ, the living embodiment of the sanctuary of God. As we enter Christ, we find forgiveness, we find love, we find, find um, eternity in him. And so Asaph reached for the promise that God would send a Messiah. Thomas got to see that Messiah in person. But that Messiah, Jesus Christ, is the same Lord and Savior that you have as well. Right? We grasp a hold of Jesus and we let him take us at times through the darkness, through the pain, through the fear, and even through our doubts. And the assurance we have is that as we hold Christ, he holds us. And he walks us out of that dark cave we call life and ultimately will walk with us into eternity. So the sanctuary Asaph entered, it was Christ. The sanctuary we find sanctuary in, it's Christ and sins forgiven in him. That changes Asaph. Remember how I probably figure like his editor liked the second half of the psalm? The first half, not so much, but we like your second half. Um, because the second half has changed. Asaph has, has borne his soul, has admitted all these things, but the second half of that says, here's now what I actually want to say, and, and here's my praise. Look at verse 17 again, and then specifically 23 and 24. I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Right? Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Right? What did Asaph find in the midst of his doubts? He held on to Christ. And what does he say about that? In Christ, he would be guided through it all. The very same thing is true for us and for you and your doubts. Practically, what does that look like in the life of a Christian? I've got three tips for you. This isn't all-encompassing, but these are three places in our doubts, in our struggles, in our darkness. Three things. First is we pray. 
say, well, if I'm doubting, why would I pray? That's the best time to pray, right? Prayer is an act of trust. Prayer is communication with our God above. Um, the, the, when, if you've ever had toddlers and they're in a room that you cannot see and the entire room goes silent, that's when you should start worrying. Okay? We know this. When we stop communicating, when we isolate, when we become isolated, uh, that is when, when, when things become really, really bad. The same is true for us as believers. God wants to hear you as his child. So go to him in prayer. Admit your doubts. Admit your fears. And, and, and all of those things. Lay it all at, at his feet, right? Because he wants to hear it. So prayer is an act of trust and communication. God says, don't stop communicating with me. I want to hear from you, right? Second one is know the path which means we've actually got to be in God's word. Um, If we're not in God's word, if believers aren't in God's word, then how can we expect the unbelieving world around us to actually understand who our God is and his love for them? And so we've actually got to be in God's word to understand the path, um, to walk with other believers that have had similar questions, similar doubts, but ultimately found Christ, right? So pray, know the path. The last one is you walk together. Why do you come on a Sunday morning with other Christians? It's to know that you're not alone. You're not alone in your doubts. You're not alone in your fears. You're not alone in your sin. Um, um, that, that you have others that are walking this exact same path, that are following that same lifeline that we know Christ is. Right? I don't know uh, if in the moment you feel as though you are um, in the midst of those caves. <laughs> Maybe your vision and your life is closing in around you. Maybe you're struggling with doubts right now. But as long as we have that lifeline, there is an end. There is eternity. There is forgiveness. Now the good news of all of this is Christ doesn't let us go. He walks with us through that cave. How many of you pictured yourself as the rescuer in that scenario? Right? As the adult saving the child. You want to know a better picture? Christ is your rescuer. <laughs> Walking you through and out of the darkness and ultimately to eternity. And he will not let you go. That's the good news that Asaph landed on. That's the good news we get to leave with here today. Um, our sins are forgiven. Christ is going to walk with us through those doubts and ultimately into eternity and into heaven. Amen.